This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World in Seventy-Two Days by Nellie Bly Chapter 2 The Start On Thursday, November 14, 1889, at 9.40 and 30 seconds o'clock, I started on my tour around the world. Those who think that night is the best part of day, and that morning was made for sleep, know how uncomfortable they feel when for some reason they have to get up with, well, with the milkman. I turned over several times before I decided to quit my bed. I wondered sleepily why a bed feels so much more luxurious, and the stolen nap that threatens the loss of a train is so much more sweet than those hours of sleep that are free from duty's call. I have promised myself that on my return I would pretend sometime that it was urgent that I should get up, so I could taste the pleasure of a stolen nap without actually losing anything by it. I dozed off very sweetly over these thoughts to wake up with a start, wondering anxiously if there was still time to catch the ship. Of course I wanted to go, but I thought lazily that if some of these good people who spend so much time in trying to invent flying machines would only devote a little of the same energy towards promoting a system by which boats and trains would always make their start at noon or afterwards, they would be of greater assistance to suffering humanity. I endeavored to take some breakfast, but the hour was too early to make food endurable. The last moment at home came. There was a hasty kiss for the dear ones, and a blind rush downstairs trying to overcome the hard lump in my throat that threatened to make me regret the journey that lay before me. "'Don't worry,' I said encouragingly, as I was unable to speak that dreadful word, goodbye. "'Only think of me as having a vacation and the most enjoyable time in my life.' Then to encourage myself, I thought, as I was on my way to the ship, it's only a matter of twenty-eight thousand miles, seventy-five days and four hours, until I shall be back again. A few friends who told of my hurried departure were there to say good-bye. The morning was bright and beautiful, and everything seemed pleasant while the boat was still. But when they were warned to go ashore, I began to realize what it meant for me. "'Keep up your courage,' they said to me while they gave my hand the farewell clasp, I saw the moisture in their eyes, and I tried to smile so that their last recollection of me would be one that would cheer them. But when the whistle blew, and they were on the pier, and I was on the Augusta Victoria, which was slowly but surely moving away from all I knew, taking me to strange lands and strange people, I felt lost. My head felt dizzy, and my heart felt as if it would burst. Only seventy-five days! Yes, but it seemed an age— and the world lost its roundness and seemed a long distance with no end, and, well, I never turned back. I looked as long as I could at the people on the pier. I did not feel as happy as I have at other times in life. I had a sentimental longing to take farewell of everything. I am off, I thought sadly, and shall I ever get back? Intense heat bitter cold, terrible storms, shipwrecks, fevers, 
all such agreeable topics had been drummed into me, until I felt much as I imagined one would feel if shut in a cave of midnight darkness, and told that all sorts of horrors were waiting to gobble one up. The morning was beautiful, and the bay never looked lovelier. The ship glided out smoothly and quietly, and the people on deck looked for their chairs and rugs and got into comfortable positions, as if determined to enjoy themselves while they could, for they did not know what moment someone would be enjoying themselves at their expense. When the pilot went off, everybody rushed to the side of the ship to see him go down the little rope ladder. I watched him closely, but he climbed down and into the rowboat that was waiting to carry him to the pilot boat, without giving one glance back to us. It was an old story to him, but I could not help wondering if the ship should go down, whether there would not be some word or glance which he would have wished he had given. "'You have now started on your trip,' someone said to me. "'As soon as the pilot goes off and the captain assumes command, then, and only then, our voyage begins. So now you are really started on your tour around the world.' Something in his words turned my thoughts to that demon of the sea, sea-sickness. Never having taken a sea voyage before, I could expect nothing else than a lively tussle with the disease of the wave. "'Do you get seasick?' I was asked in an interested, friendly way. That was enough. I flew to the railing. Sick? I looked blindly down, caring little what the wild waves were saying and gave vent to my feelings. People are always unfeeling about seasickness. When I wiped the tears from my eyes and turned around, I saw smiles on the face of every passenger. I have noticed that they are always on the same side of the ship when one is taken suddenly, overcome, as it were, with one's own emotions. The smiles did not bother me, but one man said sneeringly, and she is going around the world. I, too, joined in the laugh that followed. Silently I marveled at my boldness to attempt such a feat, wholly unused as I was to sea voyages. Still, I did not entertain one doubt as to the result. Of course I went to luncheon. Everybody did, and almost everybody left very hurriedly. I joined them, or, I don't know, probably I made the start. Anyway, I never saw as many in the dining-room at any one time during the rest of the voyage. When dinner was served, I went in very bravely and took my place on the captain's left. I had a very strong determination to resist my impulses, but yet, in the bottom of my heart was a little faint feeling that I had found something even stronger than my willpower. Dinner began very pleasantly. The waiters moved about noiselessly, the band played an overture, Captain Albers, handsome and genial, took his place at the head, and the passengers who were seated at his table began dinner with a relish, equaled only by enthusiastic wheelmen when roads are fine. I was the only one at the captain's table who might be called an amateur sailor. I was bitterly conscious of the fact. So were the others. I might as well confess it. While soup was being served, I was lost in painful thoughts and filled with a sickening fear. I felt that everything was just as pleasant as an unexpected gift on Christmas, and I endeavored to listen to the enthusiastic remarks about the music made by my companions, but my thoughts were on a topic that would not bear discussion. 
I felt cold, I felt warm, I felt that I should not get hungry if I did not see food for seven days. In fact, I had a great longing desire not to see it, nor to smell it, nor to eat of it until I could reach land, or a better understanding with myself. Fish was served, and Captain Albers was in the midst of a good story when I felt I had more than I could endure. Excuse me. I whispered faintly, and then rushed madly, blindly out. I was assisted to a secluded spot, where a little reflection and a little unbridling of pent-up emotion restored me to such a courageous state that I determined to take the captain's advice and return to my unfinished dinner. "'The only way to conquer seasickness is by forcing oneself to eat,' the captain said, and I thought the remedy harmless enough to test." They congratulated me on my return. I had a shamed feeling that I was going to misbehave again, but I tried to hide the fact from them. It came soon, and I disappeared at the same rate of speed as before. Once again I returned. This time my nerves felt a little unsteady, and my belief in my determination was weakening. Hardly had I seated myself when I caught an amused gleam of a steward's eye, which made me bury my face in my handkerchief and choke before I reached the limits of the dining hall. The bravos with which they kindly greeted my third return to the table almost threatened to make me lose my bearings again. I was glad to know that dinner was just finished, and I had the boldness to say that it was very good. I went to bed shortly afterwards. No one had made any friends yet so I concluded sleep would be more enjoyable than sitting in the music hall looking at other passengers engaged in the same first-day-at-sea occupation. I went to bed shortly after seven o'clock. I had a dim recollection afterwards of waking up enough to drink some tea, but beyond this and the remembrance of some dreadful dreams, I knew nothing until I heard an honest, jolly voice at the door calling to me. Opening my eyes, I found the stewardess and a lady passenger in my cabin, and saw the captain standing at the door. "'We were afraid that you were dead,' the captain said when he saw that I was awake. "'I always sleep late in the morning,' I said apologetically. "'In the morning?' the captain exclaimed with a laugh, which was echoed by the others. "'It is half-past four in the evening.' "'But never mind,' he added consolingly. "'As long as you slept well, it will do you good.' Now, get up and see if you can't eat a big dinner. I did. I went through every course at dinner without flinching, and stranger still. I slept that night as well as people are commonly supposed to sleep after long exercise in the open air. The weather was very bad, and the sea was rough, but I enjoyed it. My seasickness had disappeared, but I had a morbid, haunting idea that, although it was gone, it would come again. Still, I managed to make myself comfortable. Almost all of the passengers avoided the dining room, took their meals on the deck, and maintained reclining positions with a persistency that grew monotonous. One bright, clever, American-born girl was traveling alone to Germany to her parents. She entered heartily into anything that was conducive to pleasure. She was a girl who talked a great deal, and she always said something. I have rarely, if ever, met her equal. In German as well as English, she could ably discuss anything from fashions to politics. Her father and her uncle are men well known in public affairs, and by this girl's conversation it was easy to see why she was a father's favorite child. She was so broad and brilliant and womanly. 
there was not one man on board who knew more about politics art literature or music than this girl with the marguerite hair and yet there was not one of us more ready and willing to take a race on the deck than was she i think it is only natural for travellers to take an innocent pleasure in studying the peculiarities of their fellow companions we were not out many days until everybody that was able to be about had added a little to their knowledge of those that were not i will not say that the knowledge acquired in this way is of any benefit nor would i try to say that those passengers who mingled together did not find one another as interesting and as fit subjects for comment nevertheless it was harmless and it afforded us some amusement i remember when i was told that we had among the passengers one man who counted his pulse after every meal and they were hearty meals too for he was free from the disease of the wave, that I waited quite eagerly to have him pointed out, so that I might watch him. If it had been my pulse instead of his own that he had watched so carefully, I could not have been more interested thereafter. Every day I became more anxious and concerned until I could hardly refrain from asking him if his pulse decreased before meals and increased afterwards, or was it the same in the evening as it was in the morning? I almost forgot my interest in this one man when my attention was called to another, who counted the number of steps he took every day. This one in turn became less interesting when I found that one of the women, who had been a great sufferer from seasickness, had not undressed since she left her home in New York. "'I am sure we are all going down,' she said one day in a burst of confidence, "'and I am determined to go down dressed.' I was not surprised after this that she was so dreadfully seasick. One family who were removing from New York to Paris had with them a little silver sky terrier, which bore the rather odd name of Home Sweet Home. Fortunately for the dog, as well as for those who were compelled to speak to him, they had shortened the name to Homey. Homey's passage was paid, but according to the rules of the ship, Homey was confined to the care of the butcher, much to the disgust of his master and mistress. Homey had not been accustomed to such harsh measures before, and the only streaks of happiness that came into his life were when permission was obtained for him to come on deck. Permission was granted with the proviso that if Homey barked, he was to be taken instantly below. I fear that many hours of Homey's imprisonment might be laid at our door, for he knew how to dig most frantically whenever anyone said rats, and when he did dig, he usually punctuated his attempt with short, crisp barks. With dismay we daily noted Homie's decrease in flesh. We marveled at his losing weight while confined in the butcher's quarters, and at last put it down to seasickness, which he, like some of the passengers, confined to the secrecy of his cabin. Towards the end of the voyage, when we were all served with sausage and hamburger steak, there would be many whispered inquiries as to whether Homie had been seen that day. So anxious became those whispers that sometimes I thought they were rather tinged with a personal concern that was not wholly friendship for the wee dog. When everything else grew tiresome, Captain Albers would always invent something to amuse us. He made a practice every evening after dinner of putting the same number of lines on a card as there were gentlemen at a table. One of these lines he would mark, and then partly folding the card over, so as to prevent the marked line from being seen, would pass it around for the men to take their choice. After all had marked, the card was passed to the captain, and we would wait breathlessly for the verdict. The gentleman whose name had been marked paid for the cigars and cordials for the others. Many were the discussions about the erroneous impression entertained by most foreigners about Americans in America. Someone remarked that the majority of people in foreign lands were not able to tell where the United States is. 
There are plenty of people who think the United States is one little island with a few houses on it, Captain Albert said. Once there was delivered at my house, near the wharf, in Hoboken, a letter from Germany, addressed to Captain Albers, First House in America. I got one from Germany once, said the most bashful man at the table, his face flushing at the sound of his own voice, addressed to Hoboken, opposite the United States. While at luncheon on the 21st of November, someone called out that we were in sight of land. The way everyone left the table and rushed on deck was surely not surpassed by the companions of Columbus when they discovered America. I cannot give any good reason for it, but I know that I looked at the first point of bleak land with more interest than I would have bestowed on the most beautiful bit of scenery in the world. We had not been long in sight of land until the decks began to fill with dazed-looking, wan-faced people. It was just as if we had taken on new passengers. We could not realize that they were from New York and had been enjoying a season of seclusion since leaving that port. Dinner that evening was a very pleasant affair. Extra courses had been prepared in honor of those that were leaving at Southampton. I had not known one of the passengers when I left New York seven days before, but I realized, now that I was so soon to separate from them, that I regretted the parting very much. Had I been traveling with a companion, I should not have felt this so keenly, for naturally then I would have had less time to cultivate the acquaintance of my fellow passengers. They were all so kind to me that I should have been the most ungrateful of women had I not felt that I was leaving friends behind. Captain Albers had served many years as commander of a ship in eastern seas, and he cautioned me as to the manner in which I should take care of my health. As the time grew shorter for my stay on the Augusta Victoria, some teased me gently as to the outcome of my attempt to beat the record made by a hero of fiction, and I found myself forcing a false gaiety that helped to hide my real fears. The passengers on the Augusta Victoria all stayed up to see us off. We sat on deck talking or nervously walking about until half-past two in the morning. Then someone said the tugboat had come alongside and we all rushed over to see it. After it was made secure, we went down to the lower deck to see who would come on and to get some news from land. One man was very much concerned about my making the trip to London alone. He thought, as it was so late, or rather so early, that the London correspondent who was to have met me would not put in an appearance. I shall most certainly leave the ship here and see you safely to London if no one comes to meet you, he protested despite my assurances that I felt perfectly able to get along safely without an escort. More for his sake than my own, I watched the men come on board and tried to pick out the one that had been sent to meet me. Several of them were passing us in a line just as the gentleman made some remark about my trip around the world. A tall young man overheard the remark, and turning at the foot of the stairs, looked down at me with a hesitating smile. Nellie Bly? he asked inquiringly. Yes, I replied, holding out my hand, which he gave a cordial grasp, meanwhile asking if I had enjoyed my trip, and if my baggage was ready to be transferred. The man who had been so fearful of my traveling to London alone took occasion to draw the correspondent into conversation. Afterwards he came to me and said with the most satisfied look upon his face, He is all right. 
If he had not been so, I should have gone to London with you anyway. I can rest satisfied now, for he will take care of you. I went away with a warm feeling in my heart for that kindly man who would have sacrificed his own comfort to ensure the safety of an unprotected girl. A few warm hand-clasps, an interchanging of good wishes, a little dry feeling in the throat, a little strained pulsation of the heart, a little hurried run down the perpendicular plank to the other passengers who were going to London, and then the tug cast off from the ship, and we drifted away in the dark. End of chapter 2